there are a few big ideas out there for how to shake up the model of higher ed to try to make it work better for students, especially for underserved students. One of those big ideas is called competency-based education, or CBE. It can sound kind of jargony and off-putting, but at heart, it's pretty simple. What if the way to get to a degree was to prove to a college that you've learned the required knowledge and skills? It wouldn't matter exactly how or where you learned this knowledge or the skills, the so-called competencies. Colleges would be in the business of certifying what you do know and giving you the coaching and materials to fill in the rest of what you need for any given degree. It's an idea that has implications for for K-12 too, since it really is a systemic change. The idea of competency-based education isn't new. It's been talked about for decades, and there are colleges offering degrees based on the model right now. But it's never caught on in a really sizable way. Is now, in this time of great change in this global pandemic, the time to give competency-based education a closer look? Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young, the managing editor here at Ed Surge. Our guest today is a longtime proponent of competency-based education. It's Paul LeBlanc, the president of Southern New Hampshire University. He lays out his latest thoughts about the approach in his new book, Students First. Equity, Access, and Opportunity in Higher Education. It's worth noting that LeBlanc himself is a first-generation college student, and he's long experimented with ideas to help expand access to higher education. Over the years, he has led Southern New Hampshire University to become a mega-university online to serve students who can't get to its traditional campus. The university has more than 130,000 online students these days. Paul LeBlanc has already brought competency-based education to his own university in a program at Southern New Hampshire called College for America. But he admits that his CBE experiment hasn't grown as fast as he'd hoped. And he says that's because moving to this model is a really big and really hard challenge for colleges. But he thinks the approach could grow, especially in the aftermath of the COVID pandemic. And he has a proposal on how to get there. I started by asking LeBlanc, what is it about competency-based education that's so different than the traditional model? He says it starts because colleges are too focused on measuring how much time students spend in class. Um, We've built a system based on time, and we know time is really good for measuring how long people sat at a desk over a 15-week period. Um, But it's not very good at telling you what they've actually learned. And in fact, most of higher education has resisted the kind of accountability, the clarity of claims we make for our student learning. And we're not very good as an an industry in terms of assessing those claims. In other words, how do we know? I will say, you know, in some ways, competency-based education comes down to two simple questions. What claims do you make for what students can do with what they know? And how do you know? Like, how are you assessing that? And those are, on some level, pretty simple questions. When you start to unpack them, they're very complicated questions. Um, but I think if we start there and say, of any program, what are the claims you make? Students learn a whole lot from you. Let's just sort of agree that that's the case. What can they do with what they've learned? Because that's really going to help us align with workforce needs. It's going to align with, it's going to allow us to hold ourselves accountable to, to the claims we make for the humanities, for the claims we make for service learning. I think it's commonly misunderstood, or there's a sort of common misperception that CB is only useful for vocational 
quote-unquote kinds of things. Like, sure, I understand how CB works for someone who's becoming a software engineer and your code compiles or doesn't compile. Um, but, but how do I think about this in terms of philosophy, for example? And it's like, wait a minute. Philosophy has amazing claims it could make for what its students can do with what they've learned as philosophy majors. There's a reason why McKinsey recruits from the philosophy departments of our best universities, because those students have actual skills, right? They, they're critical thinkers. They understand logic. They, they understand language. Um, they're, they're meaning makers. Um, those, are, those are some of the most highly sought after skills in the workforce. Why would you not want to embrace that? And then the question is, how do you know? One of the things that struck me um, in your book is you say that the biggest challenge to competency-based education is that it requires more from everyone in the, in the system, it sounds like, um, from professors and administrators, but also from students. Um, what did you mean by that? If you think about higher education today, you know, this is the old joke about, you know, a D still stands for degree. Like, we let students slide by all the time. Um, and, and we're graduating people um, with in many instances, most instances, not a lot of clarity about what they know, what they can do. I mean, the transcript is a black box for most external people. If I'm hiring somebody and I say, oh, you took managerial accounting, I can infer um, maybe what you studied, but I don't actually know how good you are, what skills you have, what actual knowledge you have. So, so we know that. Um, even in those places that you would think, wait a minute, there's got to be a lot of clarity, like nurses, for example, right? We graduate nurses, and we, we know what that looks like. They've got to take a national licensure exam, their state board, all these kinds of things, right? But if you talk to the heads of uh, sort of clinical staffs of healthcare system after healthcare system, they will tell you nurses are not ready for the floor when they graduate. They would say, no, they don't actually have the skills we need them to have in order for us to put them to work. So you take a big system like Providence Health, which is third or fourth largest in the country, 54 hospitals, they have an internal academy that recent hired nursing, nurse, nursing graduates have to enter for X amount of time before they know that they're ready to do the work. So, so if you think of how we do what we do today, we know it doesn't shed much light on what students can actually do. And I think part of what's really powerful about this model is that it forces us to be much clearer about the claims we make. And then again, that assessment. But it also means you can't slide by to my starting point. That C&D doesn't hold up. If you take a look at our competency-based program, our College for America program, the direct assessment program, um, you know, you progress by demonstrating mastery of competencies and you don't get to sort of go by with, you know, each competency has a rubric. Let's say there are 10 items on a given competency. You don't slide by with seven of them. Like, I don't, I don't want my pilots to be really good at everything but landing. Landing's actually pretty important. Like, I want the whole package, right? I don't want my, my, my nurse to only be good at certain things and maybe not that great at other things. Like, how do I know, right? So we, we, it really does require us to be much more rigorous. And I think the thing that makes me nervous about genuine competency-based programs, it could actually um, depress graduation rates, at least for a while, because you're going to hold people to a genuine standard of learning. And it's also going to be hard for institutions when they say, wait a minute, what we, you know, our students are struggling with A, B, or C. What's going on here? How do we fix that? So it will, it will shed a light on the shortcomings of our existing system. Hmm. So it's, um, it, it is an interesting, um, that I hadn't really thought of that. You're saying that the, basically the, the system we have now, it, it, it is a pretty easy way. It's up to the professor 
to say whether the students go on and there's not a system to check that effectively that it's just only only where our lives matter right so we will not rely on grades and gpa for pilots nurses doctors you know those places where our life depends on it we're like look at we don't care what your gpa is from emory riddle you're still going to sort of take FAA exams. You're still going to be in a simulator. You're still going to be in the right-hand seat of the co- cockpit before we let you have the left-hand seat. Same with nurses, you know. Um, so it's great that you had a 4.0 GPA in your nursing program. You're still going to take the nursing boards. You're still going to have lots and lots of clinical hours under the watchful eye of a nursing supervisor who will sign off and say, yeah, Jeff actually can do what we need him to do with patients, right? So. Um, where our life depends on it, we don't trust grades, we don't trust GPAs, we don't trust course transcripts, we want a whole lot more reassurance. And even in those instances, with my nursing example, we know that a lot of nursing programs are producing nurses and aren't ready to do the job, even in those instances. You mentioned that reforms made around this area need to think about the broader education system. You know, you're in a higher ed setting, but... It seems like you, you, you say in the book that addressing just the college issue is like, quote, cleaning up pollution downstream while the factory upstream continues to put chemicals in the river. So it makes me, it makes me curious. You mentioned the K-12 system, obviously, here. What changes do you recommend for K-12 to, to better prepare students for the competency-based college that you're, you're sort of advocating for? So on one level, they're they have the same issue, right? Which is that they're looking at progress in a sort of structured sequential way, which has to do with what age you are. And, and so you know, that you've got passing grades and we know that the same sort of grade inflation, same sort of passing kids through, we know that 50% of students arrive on college campuses, not actually ready to do college level math or English. So it will lay bare, it will shed a light on the issues of, of preparation. So it's going to force greater rigor on K-12. And, and you do have K-12 systems, including here in my home state of New Hampshire, that are moving to competency-based frameworks. So the other thing this allows, of course, are kids to move faster or slower um, through the system. And that, I think, is one of the virtues. And everyone loves the stories of speed. You know, the person who finishes the two-year uh, an associate's degree in just one year. We have those stories. The person who completes a typically a four-year degree in only two years. We have those stories. But I like to tell the stories of the student who, you know, took a year and a half to get through the writing competency. And the reason I'd like to tell that story is that when they finished, what I can do is I can stand behind the claim I make for that student. That student actually will be able to write. Maybe not what would be Hemingway, but they'll be able to do the kind of workplace writing that we define as a core competency in a given program. And that's what employers love about competency-based education as well is that it gives us a common language, but it also gives them reassurance. When I talk to employers and I ask them, I'll say sometimes, raise your hand if you've hired somebody from a really good reputation, you know, a school with a really good reputation for your program that can't write very well. Every hand in the room will go up, right? And I can do that for sort of air vet, I can do it for quant skills, I can do it for lots of things. So I think that, to go back to your question of K-12, I think that K-12 and higher education both benefit greatly if we can start to get to the question of um, actual student learning and, and genuine rigorous assessment. But it will force upon us a, gen- a different kind of commitment because it's going to be hard work. It's, you know, and we know that in K-12 we have underfunded public systems that are not giving 
the kinds of resources and time that kids need to, to succeed in the ways they need to succeed. Now, you at, at Southern New Hampshire, as you alluded to, started College for America several years ago now. And I remember when you first announced that, I think there were, you know, huge hopes that this was going to really solve a problem and be bigger than it um, ended up being, especially right out of the gate. What, you know, what do you think that was about? And, you know, why hasn't this caught on more widely considering all the, the positives that you've stretched, sketched out? Yeah. So, I, you know, I would say separate, I must unpack that question to two pieces. So one is why my irrational optimism and like I now know with some perspective and scar tissue, like all the assumptions I got wrong and happy to sort of, you know, describe that for you. And then I think there's another piece of that, which is kind of the Gartner curve, which is the irrational exuberance that comes with a breakthrough. Like, and I think about MOOCs, for example, you remember the same sort of crazy expectations. And then if you know the Gartner curve, you go from that irrational exuberance into the slough of despair, where it's like, oh, that was just a complete bust. Not true either. Neither of those polarities are accurate. And then what you then have is the slow, more off the radar screen buildup. So if I look at CB, I think, I mean, I was guilty of this, rational exuberance, slow of despair, oh, CB, see, it, it kind of washed out. But if you actually look, CB programs are springing up everywhere. And, and they're quietly sort of proliferating. And I think part of what, you know, holds it back from going faster is the challenges of Title IV, which is not built to support CB programs. And it's getting better, like some of that's being ironed out. But in my book, I call for a demonstration project that would better support performance-based programs. Can I stop you there for, so just to clarify for, for listeners, so you're talking about federal regulations that, that govern how higher ed has to be run in order to qualify for federal funding of student loans and, all the thing, and other things. And so um, these are based on the seat time model effectively. And so, so you're, you're calling for um, not a wholesale snap your fingers change of higher ed, but a, some demonstration efforts that would then kind of phase it in for people or prove it more? Yeah, so if you so first of all, I would say you know it was interesting getting into the Title IV question. You realize the ways in which um, underlying administrative rules can actually undercut policy intent. So in Title IV, there is a policy intent that Congress passed, which was we will allow this alternative to the credit hour, but none of the administrative rules for the dispersal financial aid changed, and they're all tied to the credit hour. So you still talk about things like. Time. They're all time-based, satisfactory academic progress, definition of an academic term, right? These are all time-based measures. So, so what you have happened then is administrative rules actually impede progress in the intent of the legislation. So a demonstration project for your listeners who may not be familiar with them is, actu uh, is actually um, a sort of provision that allows Congress to say, we're not going to just open the floodgates for a new thing. But we will allow, essentially, an experiment. Um, X number of schools, they sometimes can delineate how many can participate. We will allow you to do some things differently. We'll, we'll lift some of the rules as a way of understanding what you're trying to do, and then from that basis, build good policy. Probably the most powerful example of that, I mentioned in the book, was the demonstration project back in the late 90s that allowed the lifting of a 50% cap on virtual learning. So the, before that demonstration project, you could have no more than 50% of your learning in any program be 
uh, online. So 50% of your program had to happen face-to-face. -face. Then the demonstration project lifted what was called the 50% rule. And it said, nope, you can make a case, you can make a proposal for 75% will be online or 100% will be online. And in fact, that's what allowed the first fully virtual degrees. Now, what happened at that point was that the not-for-profits were looking down their nose at online learning and didn't get into the space. The for-profits rushed in, right, nature abhors a vacuum, and took that market. And as you know, at their height, they educated 12% of American college students. Now they're in steep decline. Um, but what made virtual learning in the way that it now has sort of, you know, proliferated across our industry possible? It was a demonstration project. It was that Congress looked at it and said, hey, you know what? This is workable. You can actually do this thing that we thought was impossible. We don't need that rule anymore. And that just opened up online learning for the way we know it today. And as you know, not-for-profits have kind of come storming back and taken online learning back from the for-profit world by and large. Um, my hope is that by opening up the financial aid rules in a similar way, for competency-based education, we can think of better models, we can support more innovation in that space. We know how to do good CBE. What we don't have to know how to do is how to pay for it in the correct ways. It challenges our ways of thinking about what we pay for. So if we can solve for that, then I think you would see CBE accelerate. Um, it, it does raise the question of uh, that, that period you just quickly described of the for-profits kind of really jumping into the online space before traditional nonprofits colleges it was it was a very messy time and you know hurt a lot of students with bad act when bad actors you know did things that were um, now you know documented to be problematic um, and so how do you avoid that sort of gold rush or whatever you want to call it that has problems if you you know, run this approach for demonstration projects in, in competency-based learning? Yeah, so I think there are a number of things you have to do, and I try to describe these in the book. So one is um, you build a sort of structure of payment based on performance so that you're never sort of make, you know, the way that traditional Title IV works, you, you dispense all the money in the front end. Um, then there's a return to Title IV provisions and all this other sort of complication about how, how the money flows. So I think we can, and what I argue for is a demonstration project that actually has a kind of built-in limiter to how much financial aid can be paid out at any given time, and then transparency. So I think, again, so much of higher education tends to um, resist the kind of accountability and transparency that I would like to see for CBE programs, because I think they stand up well, but you know the kind of reporting student data, so that there's a you never could have a bad actor who is sort of climbing up in huge numbers of enrollments without real recognition of what's actually happening to those students. Where are they landing? Are they getting jobs? Are they getting jobs that pay more than they borrowed for the program? All of those sorts of things. And that's described in the book. And the inspiration for that work was a program called Equip that I worked on when I did a sabbatical at the Department of Ed. It never went anywhere. Um, and I talk a little bit about that in the book. But I think the kinds of protections and safeguards that were built into that could actually work very well here. Because you get this you get this real tension, as you know, Jeff, between the student consumer protection advocates, and, and, and that generally characterizes a good number of folks in this current administration, and the kind of innovation advocates. And they both have really good stories to tell about why their stance makes sense. And you alluded to it, for the consumer protection people, we see, we've seen the abuses. We don't want to go back down that road again. And for the innovators, I think, you know, they're saying, look, we know how to do CB. Get out of our way. Like, give us, you know, you're, you're holding it back. 
Um, and that's the tension we're trying to navigate. And I'm try, I try to recommend in the book a demonstration project that, that sort of attends to both the concerns. Well, I think I'll leave it at that. I really appreciate your taking the time to, to share your thoughts and to talk about your book. Yeah, no, happy to do it. Um, Carl, it's good to see you. This week, we are trying something new, a new segment of the podcast where we hear from listeners like you. Two weeks ago, we ran an episode about free open online courses, featuring an argument about how to make them even more free and open by removing the registration wall that big online ed providers like Coursera and edX require. We heard from a few listeners responding to that idea after the podcast ran, including one who has thought a lot about the issue since he used to work at Coursera. So hi, my name is uh, Kapish Saraf. Uh, I used to be a director of product uh, at Coursera, leading the consumer experience. Uh, and then for the last few months, I've been investing in and advising various uh, educational technology companies. So Kapish reached out to me by email and asked whether I wanted to hear about the experiments that he'd actually done while at Coursera to try to make the material more open. And yeah, I definitely wanted to hear about it. So I called him up. You heard our, our most recent episode um with talk which talked about uh, open online courses and it directly talked about Coursera a little bit and it seems like you had a reaction as you listened so I'd love to just kind of get back to that and just like what as you listen to this idea of for those who haven't gone back to it it's um it's, it's sort of the idea that this this person who did the first MOOC or was co-teaching the first MOOC sort of wishes places like Coursera and others that offer open on courses now would would kind of not require registration and just kind of make them more, even more open than they are when they're, even when they're free. And so that was an idea that um, he's putting out there and you had a reaction to that from your direct experience, it sounds like. Yeah. So, so when I joined Coursera in 2014, um, I was responsible for building kind of what we call the future of the learning experience. And we had the exact same idea at the time, which is, Hey, if we reduced friction and made it really seamless, we would get a lot more people uh, to, to learn. Um, and so I actually led a lot of experiments which did exactly that, reducing friction, uh, no need to register for a Coursera account, no need to enroll for a course, go at your own pace, complete flexibility. And what we saw was that, yes, we saw some more people access it because there was less friction, but it was not a great learning experience because people were not retaining. Because it turns out if you remove friction, people are like, oh, this content is there, or, is there. I can just take it anytime, and then they never do. And so that's why Coursera has the experience we have today. We did a lot of experimentation to actually get to the point. And, you know, we, Coursera has talked about this publicly, uh, thinking about what is the right set of the right friction or the right set of scaffolding that will provide that will help people actually complete courses, especially when, you know, things get difficult, they're stuck, uh, you know, com continuing through that. Um, and in order to provide the scaffolding, you need to have a little bit of friction uh, as well. Um, and so in the experiments we did, we tried to really find the right balance between, you know, seamless, no friction consumer experience and scaffolding and support that kind of keeps people coming back. And we saw that ha requiring enrollment, having a schedule, uh, giving people deadlines, uh, all of these things which... Uh, on the surface seem bad and friction uh, actually are very helpful for for people. So kind of a surprise then, in other words, like it was it went against your hypothesis, which was that that less friction would actually help learners. And it was the opposite. Yeah, it uh, went against our initial hypothesis. In hindsight, it's kind of obvious when I explain it to people. But uh, yeah, it was a kind of surprise learning for us. 
Yeah, you know, it's an interesting piece as I was researching the episode. And I, you know, I, I think there's a case, I, I'm trying not to take sides on these things that are that are divided, but it's interesting to see the evidence. When I went to some of the Coursera lectures that are on YouTube, they're, they're like, even for the one that I played a clip of in the last episode of um, the Yale professor talking about the science of happiness. And she's obviously a rock star. She's had millions of people sign up for that course. And the YouTube videos are just not that popular, like of the the little one-off videos as they've been, you know, removed from the context of the course and put on there. So, you you know, you would think that they would be, they would do better, but they haven't for whatever reason. Now, maybe you could argue that if they were optimized for spreading it that way, it might spread better. But I, I you know, this is not my area of expertise, but it's, it's interesting to take that as well, where it's like, um, what is the best way to package a free course or an open access course. And it, it seems like, it seems like people are still figuring that out. Yeah. I, I think it's really open and I'm sure we'll see a lot of uh, evolution in the space. I think the energy in tech now is more towards cohort based courses. So more towards, you know, what I was describing a more scaffolded experience, but much more high touch. Um, yeah. I mean, YouTube is really popular, right? A lot of learning happens on YouTube, but the content there is optimized very differently. They're meant to really be standalone units of content, you know, typically 10 minutes or more. Um, at Coursera, we found the short videos are definitely better than really long videos. But uh, even we, when we've experimented with uh, sort of creating a YouTube-like experience and like having courses be standalone, which we do, you can actually access a lot of Coursera uh, videos if you just search for them and, you know, they appear in Google search results. Uh, it's not as engaging. So so a course is not really optimized for that, you know, sort of drop in, take a few snippets uh, uh, type of experience. Like imagine if you just took someone random and dropped them into an MIT or Stanford classroom and, you know, show, gave them access to like 10 minutes of that uh, lecture. Right? In the middle and in the middle without the uh, early. Yeah. So... Yeah, I mean, that's what we learned. And so I just wanted to share that with you that like, it's a good idea, but actually, you know, we've, uh, we've uh, tried it and talked about it quite publicly uh, before. That previous episode, it focused on an interview with Stephen Downs. He's a pioneer of open online education, and he's the one who co-taught the very first MOOC. And I noticed that on his popular email newsletter, OL Daily, or Online Learning Daily, he had a note about our episode. He especially reacted to a joke I made in the end credits that we here at EdSurge do in fact require signups to get to our EdSurge podcast newsletter. Downs wrote, I should take pains to say that my position does not amount to saying that there should be no signup ever. What I'm talking about is open access to MOOCs and learning resources. If you want an email newsletter, you'll have to provide an email to send it to, duh. And if you want AI-supported search services, you need to provide data to inform and train that AI. My point is that this sort of thing should be optional, should not collect more data than is needed to provide the system, and not converted into a barrier preventing all access to and sharing of learning resources. End quote. This is great. We do want to be part of an ongoing conversation about the future of learning. And we welcome your input on any of the episodes we do. We've even set up a new phone hotline I know it's kind of old school, that you can call in and leave a comment. The number is 202-990-8525. That's 202-990-8525. 
Or you can actually just shoot me an email at jeff at edsurge.com or hit me up on Twitter at J.R. Young. All right, that's it for this week. As always, we encourage you to subscribe to the EdSurge podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like and value the show, please take a minute to leave a rating or a review. Thanks so much to the folks who actually have given us reviews in recent weeks. It always makes my day to see those come in and just know people are out there listening. Appreciate it. And you can sign up for our growing EdSurge podcast newsletter at edsurge.com. Just click on newsletter at the top right. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening and have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving.